You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everyone. Welcome again. It's Noah Rosenfarb, your host for the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and a partner at Freedom Business Advisors. Today, we've got a great guest with John Mill. John is a public speaker and business succession consultant, but perhaps more importantly in the focus of today's discussion, he's the author of Hire Your Buyer, which is a newly released book coming out. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Noah. So, you know, I saw on John had posted on LinkedIn that he changed his title to author of Hire Your Buyer. And I I reached out to you, John, because I thought that title was just amazing. You know, and what we find is that so many of the business owners that, you know, especially if they're doing less than a couple million in sales, their best path is to think about hiring their buyer. So I really appreciated the title and couldn't wait to talk to you. So share with our listeners what led you to write the book. Well, it's kind of a two-part answer, Noah. There's firstly, there's my personal backstory, and then secondly is what I kind of the solution that I was fortunate enough to stumble across through my research. So start with telling me about your background then. So the backstory is is that I started off as a a small entrepreneur, and as a result of my experiences, I decided that law school would be a, a helpful thing, and decided to become a small business lawyer. And so for 20 years. I worked as a small business lawyer in Windsor, Ontario, and pretty much did everything along the way. I picked up a master's degree in tax because tax is a a big issue for a lot of small business people. I've appeared in the Federal Court of Appeal, and I've done pretty much everything there is to do legally with respect to uh, small business ownership. But I was unhappy. I just, it just, it wasn't, I didn't find the work of being a lawyer. I found it too confrontational. I found it too transactional. And it, and it just wasn't satisfying to me. So I started looking for other things. And along the way, one of the things that I, I stumbled into is I was uh, asked to be a speaker to uh, the Bank of Montreal High Net Worth Group across uh, Canada. And I, and I did that and I met those folks and, and they seemed like uh, pretty happy folks. So I thought that'd be a good thing to try. So I did that for a couple of years, but I, I, it sort of didn't work out because I was told that I had to be salesy. And I asked, what does salesy mean? And they said, well, you know, you have to you got to wear a white belt and, and and white shoes and be salesy. And so, no, I don't I don't have a white belt. I don't I don't have white shoes. So it, it sort of didn't really work out for me because I'm more of a researcher type. I came across the area of business succession. I thought, you know what, business succession. Now that that's something that makes sense for me. And and so that's when I decided to really dig into it and 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 become a master of of that area of planning. Had you had some clients that had gone through either succession, you know, challenges or problems that piqued your interest or was it kind of out of thin air? 
Yes, exactly. I did have some clients and I started to kind of connect the dots. And as I'm, I'm, I'm myself, I'm 55. So I'm right in the age bracket of, of the, uh, typical baby boomer succession planner. And also it's an issue for me as to what I want to do with the rest of my life. But yes, I had some clients and, uh, we worked with them and exactly as you said, Noah, you hit the nail on the head. The under $2 million valuation business is, is, which is, what I've worked in uh, almost my entire career and sometimes smaller businesses than that, just because they're small doesn't mean that they have big problems because some of them do. But, uh, you know, they, that's what we did was work with them, with the owners to uh, uh, work with their employees. And it, it became a very happy, harmonious time. So that was the inspiration for Hire Your Buyer to bring this message to the masses? Yeah, essentially, because I did the research. So so my experience is is a little bit a little bit different. It has overlap with a lot of the people I've heard on your show, but my experience is a little bit different because I worked almost exclusively with such small businesses. And so their, their needs are a little bit different than when you get into the above $5 million enterprise value and you start to get into the mid-market and you have M&A advisors and it's a more professional environment from a business perspective. So in my audience, my small business market, the 90% of the businesses really can't sell for a, a meaningful amount of money or enough to uh, last in retirement for 20 years. And in fact, the website bizbuysell.com, which is a business listing website in the United States, 10 million page views a month, and they've got hundreds of thousands of listings. The average business value on that website is 155000 So that's not going to cut it for 20 years of retirement. And a lot of business people are surprised that the same business that generates $200,000 a year of income may only be worth even less than two hundred thousand, and and sometimes often not more than three or four hundred thousand, and that's not going to cut it, and that's that's quite a rude surprise. So the question really is, okay, well if it's really not meaningfully going to sell, and a lot of businesses don't go to their family members, Price Waterhouse thinks about thirty percent. You know that leaves a big gap in between, and so that's that's where I saw the opportunity. Yeah, and one of the things you've talked about in your book, or wrote about in your book, I should say, is the attractive force of the owner being the goodwill of the company. I thought that was a really kind of interesting framework that you laid out. So maybe you could share with our listeners the comparison of goodwill at Coca-Cola that you use with the, the kind of goodwill at these smaller businesses where the owner is really the one driving the ship. Yeah, that's a very good point, and it's it's a fundamental business point that is understood again in the M and A circles and the valuation circles. But with the smaller business owners that I talk to, it's it's not as obvious because a lot of the business owners are I find that the entrepreneurs because what 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 is it that the book EMF tells us that eighty percent of businesses are don't make it past ten years. Well, most of the entrepreneurs, the baby boomer entrepreneurs that are my age have been in business 20 years or longer. So there's something going on there. They have something of value, but the attractive force. So the term goodwill essentially means attractive force. So it's something goodwill is a a valuation item that would be over and above the value of your assets. So it would be the attractive force of the business. So in the case of Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola has gone out and 
invested hundreds of millions in, in marketing to develop a kind of a, a happy, warm, fuzzy image of their polar bears dancing around the North Pole and all the other things that attracts us to Coca-Cola. And so that goodwill in the, in the valuation of Coca-Cola is worth about $60 billion, which is just astounding because if you take all their equipment and all their everything else, that's worth about $12 billion. The other $60 billion is just based on goodwill, the attractive force of the fact that you put the name Coca-Cola on the can. Now, if we go back to a small business, the small business, the attractive force is the owner personally. And the difference is, and the problem is, is that that goodwill is not transferable. You can't sell it. If the owner leaves, the goodwill is gone and all you have left is liquidation value. And so what should the owners be doing with that in mind? How do they try and capture that goodwill so it becomes transferable, capture that attractive force? Yeah, that's a really a good question. I spent a lot of time thinking about that because it is such a, a common problem. And so I describe the personal goodwill, the, the term, the technical term, the attractive force is what happens with goodwill. Goodwill actually is an attractive, like a magnetic force that pulls employees and customers and suppliers to want to work, to want to have a relationship. That's the attractive force. But the technical term usually used is called personal goodwill. It means it's personal, non-transferable goodwill. So I analogize personal goodwill to a light bulb in a room. So it's casting off a lot of light and a lot of heat, but it's all being wasted. So the owner really only needs enough light to read the book or to walk down the hallway. All the rest of the light, especially the light behind his back, is just is wasted. And so what I want to work with the owner is to capture that wasted good personal goodwill and translate it and convert it into value. And the way that we have to do that, and one of the simplest ways to do that, is through hiring your buyer and training those people and bringing them up so that they can essentially trade off and employ and utilize the attractive force that the owners created and use that to create more value. So what should owners look for in this successor hire? What are some of the key attributes and walk me through how they might find someone. Is this a, you know, is there the hire buyer uh, job pool or, or, or that's kind of going to yeah. come later in the the yeah, so what, yeah, no, no, and, and that's a that's a great question. A lot of these questions are great questions because many people are, are confused. Yeah, okay, yeah, hire your buyer sounds great, but, you know, and I talked to one guy, and, and this is the classic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break your the answer up into three parts. So the what's the classic problem situation? What do, what do we look for, and where do we find them, Okay. So the classic problem situation, so I'm sitting down with somebody who's 74 years old, old school, very hardworking, very intelligent, great education, hard work ethic, and we're having coffee, very nice person, and he's bragging to me about how last Saturday he spent till 5 o'clock at the shop making sure the drawings were right because nobody else could do it, right? That's the classic problem right there. Nobody else can do it. And this person, so I asked him, we were talking and, and, and having a nice conversation. And I said, well, have you ever considered hiring your buyer? And then he gave me the magic answer, Noah, that I've heard on a number of occasions. And here's how he starts. He says, well, you know, the kids these days, they just don't know how to work. And as soon as I hear that, I know that this person is not the kind of person that will really qualify as a hire your buyer candidate. They're not going to qualify because they won't accept 
someone who does something different than them or, or something else? They're just not, don't have the, the, the right mindset. Yeah, they don't believe in the capability of their employees. They don't believe that they're employees that are capable of doing the work to the level that they can do it. So they're just uncomfortable, and so what they do is retain control. So let's talk about, and this segues into another part of your question, which is what are we looking for in a buyer? And so what are we looking for in a buyer is something very specific, Noah. We're looking for in a buyer exactly the same thing that I'm looking for when I'm interviewing an owner to see if, if we can work together. So what I'm looking for in an owner is I'm looking for, and it's, it's really elementary, I'm looking for people that like people. I'm looking for people, owners that enjoy seeing other people succeed. I'm looking for an owner that could coach an under 11 kids soccer team and get the kids excited about playing even when they're losing, even in the face of adversity, and to come back and to go to practice and understand that there's a connection between practice and how you perform on the field. That kind of person I can work with. And that's the kind of person that we are looking for in a buyer. In a moment, I'm going to tell you where to find them. But we're looking for the same kind of thing because buyer is a kind of a, it's a, I use it because it's a kind of a, a catchy jingle, right? Hire your buyer. It sort of rhymes in a way. But buyer in that sense is somebody might be in your company already. It might be one of your children. But the idea is, is that buyer is a new position where somebody that was a good performer previously has got to step up. The person that can step up, yes, they have to be a good performer, but what are they performing in? They could be in your design department. They could be doing finance. They could be doing marketing. And whoever's going to run the company has to do all of those things. But we do want somebody that's been historically a good performer, but we're looking for potential. We're looking for somebody, again, same quality. Does this person like people? Can they build a team? Do they want to see people succeed? That's who we're looking for. And do they exist, you know, based on the complaints of, you know, the baby boomers and even, I guess, their predecessors more so that say these Gen X and Gen Y kids, you know, they, they just want to be home for dinner every night and they don't know what it's like. And Every generation, and there's multiple examples uh, of every generation will go back and say that. They said it when I was a kid, right? They will say it in the next generation. Every generation, there are people, and really all they're really saying is, I don't believe in people. I don't believe that people can succeed. I believe that there's certain special chosen people like myself, and we are the ones that are suffering the labors of the world, and everybody else is sort of on a free ride. That's not the kind of person that we'll be good for. So what I'd like to tell you, explain to you, is where is it that we can find these people? Yeah, that would be great. I know, I know some people that are looking. Okay, no, and, and, I, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you, it's a little, a, a touch of an abstract answer, but it is the truth. And I'm going to start with a story about LeBron James's high school basketball team. And there's a great, great documentary that I highly recommend to anybody called More Than a Game because he was filmed while he was in high school. And it tells the story because LeBron James comes from Dayton, Ohio, from a very a smaller kind of uh, a rough neighborhood. And LeBron's mother was 16 when LeBron was born, and she doesn't know who his father is. And some of the kids on his team had brothers who were killed in gang violence. And, and the coach of the team, who's the narrator of the video, is saying the reason they chose the title more than a game is because that's what he saw. He saw the game of basketball as an activity that was a way out of the neighborhood. It was a way to come together to work in a guided fashion with a goal so that these young boys 
could become men and develop character. And that's why it's called More Than a Game. And that's what he saw as basketball. And there's just a great, awesome scene when LeBron is in grade 11 and the team has won the state championship. And they're on the way now to determine the national. However, I'm not sure how that works exactly, but there's some kind of a tournament or a playoff system to determine who's the number one basketball team in the nation. And because LeBron's team is ranked so low, they have to play the number one team in the nation called from a place called Oak Hill. And Oak Hill is this private boarding school, high school academy for basketball. And what they do is they recruit the best basketball players across the country, high school level, and give them full ride scholarship to go to Oak Hill and do nothing but play basketball with the best coaches in the country and, and whatever schooling that they have to do. So this is the team that they faced. And they went in LeBron's team comes in singing the song, We Are Ready, We Are Ready. And this is all on the video, right? And they go into that game and they crush Oak Hill, 80-60. And of course, in good movie style, even though it's a documentary, they go on to become the number one team in the nation. But what was great, what was fascinating at the end was the coach was sitting there and he's saying, look, you know, this is really, you think about this, we're from this small neighborhood with, with, you know, this small, rough neighborhood in, 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 in Dayton that's, you know, three or four blocks big and all the members of the team essentially are from that neighborhood. I live in that neighborhood. And from that neighborhood, we came out and we took on the team that was the best players in the country. And he says, that's, you know, I'm, I'm just so thankful that we had that opportunity. And that's really amazing. And I, and I do believe that's amazing. And I guess to answer your question, Noah, and I believe this most sincerely, is look in your neighborhood. Buyers are everywhere. It's not about finding. It's about connecting and engaging. They are everywhere. And there's a lot of kids, including me and you, that were born in the, in the past generation or so, and we like to work. And there's a lot of them out there. Yeah, great answer, great analogy. And so in terms of looking, any suggestions that you offer in terms of a process to find them or, you know, any skill requisites that you think are important over another? You mentioned, you know, personality and willingness to kind of coach the team. What are some of the other traits people should look for, ways they could source connections? Well, and you're getting a little bit more specific. And I, and I guess what I would say is, is, is kind of I'm going to take a bit of a, a duck on, the, on that answer, which I think is fair for me. I would say that you want to get to know some HR, human resources people that are good, that understand engagement and understand process and, and start talking to them. In terms of skill sets, the skill set really is leadership, right? Because most people can learn, most intelligent, hardworking people can learn the specific business process. Obviously, if it's computer science or engineering or something that requires a specific education, they're going to have to have that specific technical education, right? But really, really, honestly, the, the answer is people that understand the value of connection and the value of engagement. And that's really, if the, if the book, Hire Your Buyer, were to come down to one word, that word would be engagement. That's the key. And do you feel the owner that's 74 that doesn't believe that there's another human on earth that could do what they're doing, do you believe that part of your mission is to get him to open his eyes and, and change his mind? Or are you focused on the people that get it when you say it and recognize that there is someone and, and they, they should just control their intention and uh, put them on the right path, or both. 
Well, I'm firmly a believer in the old joke about how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. If somebody who's an intelligent person is sitting across the table from me and in a very calm, you know, thoughtful fashion telling me that hire your buyer won't work, there's really, I'm doing a disservice to both of us to try try to force the issue. Now, I can do something other than hire your buyer. I can look at, you know, we can recommend a financial planner. We can talk about how much, you know, retirement is going to cost. We can do those things. But to me, it seems a bridge too far to try to get that person, you know, into their heads. If, if they're clearly telling you, clearly messaging, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I don't believe you. Well, we, uh, just an interesting anecdote, and then I'd love it if you could share some stories. We had a, a friend of our firm that was in his late 60s and uh, had called up my partner to say, you know, I'm thinking about closing my business, and can you just come over and uh, take a look at things and just tell me if I'll be all right? And in the conversation, what we found out is that the, the owner who was in his you know, late 60s, he would be fine if he closed the business down. He'd get about 600000 out of the business if he liquidated his assets and collected his receivables. And from a financial standpoint, he was going to be okay. He could live you know, the rest of his life financially secure. But what we showed him was that you know, he actually had a key employee. And if he was willing to transfer equity to that key employee over the course of a three to four year period in exchange for some of the compensation he was already paying that individual. He instead of the six hundred thousand, he'd collect about a million four. And from from an efforts standpoint, it probably wouldn't be a much greater effort on his part. And it also, from an emotional standpoint, you know, gave him a sense of that uh, he created a legacy. He created an opportunity for someone else. And so he actually He's um, embarked on that plan. He's at, uh, I think, a year two of that plan, and it's going, you know, very well. And and it was, you know, serendipitous for him. He never thought to hire his buyer. And again, like you said, the buyer was already there. He had already hired him years ago, but he never thought of the opportunity to structure a deal with him. Maybe share some stories with me of clients that you've collaborated with where they found opportunity either in the people that they already had working with them or around the corner? Yeah, we'll, we'll do that in a moment, but I want to I want to deconstruct your story a little bit because I think you have laid out almost the archetypal classic hire your buyer story as, as you acknowledged at the end. And the difference between my fellow telling me that, you know, young kids these days can't work, which I do believe is, is, is a big signal, and I've heard it a couple of times, is that the difference is he had no key employees, nobody that he would consider key. So, and it is very common though, and as you have alluded to and, and are exactly correct, that many, many owners do not make the connection that this key employee could be someone that takes over. And there's a big problem, I think, in the professions, especially in the small business advising professions. And I have heard this many, many times, and, and no, I'd be interested to see in the, in the I'm, I'm from Canada, it's probably the same in the United States. And I've heard this many times. I've had many people come to me and we talk about hire the buyer and I hear, oh, my lawyer, oh, my accountant told me I can't do that. And then so I unbundle that and I said, well, why is it that you can't do that? Well, as soon as you give an employee shares, you have to share financial information with them. They, there's control issues and you just, you just can't do that. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why can't you do that, right? Now, in certain situations, 
And I'll give you I'll give you one example of why you can't do that, and maybe we'll then we'll we'll look at some others. But I talked to again to another owner. He had a key employee. I was in the meeting with his accountant, and I suggested, well, what about this guy's 30 years younger than you? You're telling me he runs the entire shop, the entire operation. What about you know hire your buyer? He says, oh no, oh no, I'm going to run. I'm going to work in this business for another five years, and I'm thinking. Okay, that's like the perfect time frame, but he's thinking no. And then, and then I said, and the accountant pipes up. He says, oh yeah. He says, I've done that before. I know what we'll do. Is he says, we'll give the employee some non-voting shares that we can buy back for a dollar at any time. And every once in a while, we'll give them some dividends. It'll make him feel like an owner. And I'm thinking, and I've heard this before, right? And then, but then the owner says, oh, well, he's going to get financial information. I don't want to do that. And as it turns out, this owner has, is making a lot more money out of the company than he's ever told anybody. He's always cried poor, and what he's doing is forcing everybody's wages down. So that person is not going to want to do that. That's, I guess, another kind of uh, situation where that, that person will not engage in this kind of a plan. And unfortunately, I guess, you know, we, you and I both know the statistics, and I'm sure our listeners do too, that most of these small, small business successions, they fail. You know, they fail to, to either find a buyer, whether it's internal or external, and the businesses are eventually liquidated. And I think it's in large part due to the mentality of the, the controlling owner that doesn't want to kind of open their mind to the possibility that someone else could do this on their behalf. So, yes. and, and- uh, I was going to ask, can you share a success story, you know, someone that you worked with? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I worked with the uh, uh, firm of uh, engineers, classic situation, very good engineer in uh, Ontario and very successful. And the original assignment was to say, okay, well, if you're only one person, even though you got, you're got you a leader of the profession, there are risks, right? If you want to take time off and if you ever were to become disabled, because what are the chances between the age of, say, 55 and 75 of being disabled for, uh, not disabled in the classic sense, but being unable to go to work for two or three months? I mean, statistically, it's an extremely high ratio of people that that will happen to at least once in that 20-year period, right? And, and so what happens? And so that's a very, very insecure place to be. So again, this person had lots of personal goodwill. And so what we did was brought in a number of other uh, engineers who were, so again, same age, he's about 57, 58. And the younger engineers were bringing in about 30. Well, they're very happy to have an opportunity to work with somebody of this caliber. And that's, you know, we talked about taking the personal goodwill and essentially baking these people into, into place over four or five years. And then but what essentially we do, and I explain this very honestly to everybody, is this is what we're doing is we're bringing you in. By virtue of the unused goodwill that's already here, there's going to be a flow of business coming to you that you would not otherwise be able to get. And yes, they agree. And I said, so what we're going to do is we're going to set you up, and essentially we're going to sell to you the cash flow that you create. And I said, if that's okay with you. I said, get independent advice. I said, and your option, if you don't like that idea, is to try to do it on your own and spend 15 years building it up. And everybody that we talked to, once they looked at the numbers and they looked, you know, I was being very straightforward and upfront about it, but that essentially using those people to convert the personal goodwill into cash flow that we then value and then sell back to them. But we sell it back to them, not for money out of their pocket, but for a share of the profit that they're creating. So they're really not out of pocket. So it's, 
it's truly a win-win-win all around. You have a situation now where the person no longer has to worry about, you know, if they ever were to get sick for two or three months or if they want to take off to Florida, which is a big thing in Ontario, by the way, going to Florida. I don't know. I don't know how big it is uh, where you're from, but uh, the being able to go to Florida for a couple months in the winter or whatever the places that you go to to take a couple months off. So now he has that situation, and we've got a bunch of happy campers and younger engineers that have this awesome opportunity to build this uh, uh, very flat organizational structure where they can engage in really high-quality, high-end work that they otherwise wouldn't be able to open the door to. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, one of the ones I talk about is the future of business owner planning. And part of that future that I envision is that owners are educated about all their options to sell or transfer their company. And I think this concept of hire your buyer is one that'll become hopefully well recognized and, and due in, in some part to the book that you've put out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. What else would you like to share with our listeners today? Well, I guess the idea, again, go back to think, because most people with the small business advisors, I, I, I guess I will tell you, though, the one more anecdote that's, that's kind of in the book. And, and part of what, as I opened up the show and talked about my own unhappiness and kind of where I discovered the answer to that, and essentially, essentially what it was was I was not really connecting and not really engaging myself. And so part of this reflects my own personal journey. But the, in the book I write about, there's a book called Tribal Leadership, and it's a book about employee engagement in, in large companies. And in terms of employee development, they break it down into five stages. And in the first stage of employee development, there's the, the, the essentially the unemployable. So they start with the people that are unemployable, and what are the qualities and the hallmarks of people who are unemployable? Well, they live in a world that sucks. The world sucks. Nobody understands them. Nobody's fair. Nobody reciprocates. There's no point to putting any effort out because nothing will ever good will ever come of it. And if they ever were to try to do something that was good, it would be taken from them. So that kind of mentality and that attitude is, is leads to gang kind of behaviors, and those people will be a liability in the company. Stage two is a very large group, and those are the kind of people that have the Dilbert boss. And so they no longer does the world suck, but these are the people that my life sucks. And, you know, I can't get ahead and my boss doesn't get me. And there's really, I don't understand what we're doing here in this company. and I don't see how I contribute. And, you know, the goal really is, let's see if I can get away with working as little as I can. And that's really what it be. That's really what the focus is. So, so that's stage two. Stage three is moving beyond that. And stage three is all the refugees and the escapees from stage two. So I worked in a number of jobs and I decided when I was in my teenager years that I wanted to become a businessman and then a professional. So I'm a classic stage three escapee from stage two. And stage three is typified by the statement, I'm great, you're not. And in the book, they talk about how a lot of accountants and lawyers and doctors are guys that are, you know, I'm great, you're not. And especially I can tell you for sure, Noah, as being a trial lawyer for 20 years, that's the ultimate I'm great exercise is, is being a trial lawyer because we're there to win and, and prove in court that I'm great and you're not. So, but what that leads to is a lack of connection and a lack of engagement. And that's really the problem with the small business lifestyle business the entire kind of industry is just, I'm great, you're not attitude. Because entrepreneurs generally are in the same kind of mind frame, like the fellow we were talking about, the 74-year-old. Nobody else can do it. I'm great. Nobody else is. 
and then they go to lawyers and accountants who share the same mind frame. I'm great. Nobody else is. And and I talk to a lot of lawyers, and, and when we talk, and I said, do you realize that it's negligent for you to advise people or, or owners to trust their employees? Everything has to be in, documented. Everything has to be in writing. So that's the stage three mindset, and it's that I'm great that really keeps people polarized and it keeps them from engaging. So the authors then talk about, well, what is stage four? Well, stage four is we're great. And that's the hallmark of the great organizations in the country is that they have this we're great team philosophy and attitude. And so that's where I really want to get people to is to we're great. And there's a lot of evidence. And I set out at length evidence in the book. And a lot of people don't realize, and I'll tell you one piece of evidence and and then kind of wrap up this little anecdote, is that the greatest companies to work for. There's a Fortune magazine. Fortune magazine has a Fortune 100 greatest companies to work for. And if you were to take the list of the greatest companies to work for and make it a stock index by itself and just track the performance of that 100 stocks as, as, as an index, and then compare it to either the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, the greatest companies to work for, since it's been tracked, they started in 1997, on average, outperforms the regular stock market by double. So this is not, this stuff that I'm talking about is not based on totally touchy-feely kind of unprovable nonsense. And that's what I'm trying to set out to prove, is that there really is something to this we're great, I call it a martial art, right? Because I don't, I don't want to be naive. I've done trial law for 25 years. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to give up control naively in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad situation. But I believe that doing it intelligently in a way that we can engage people will lead to a lot more value. Well, I happen to agree with you. And hopefully our listeners, if they don't agree with that sensible heartedly, they could read more about it and hire your buyer. And how might they get in touch with you, John? What's the best way? Two ways. I I, uh, have a um, website called SuccessionTaxCouncil.com, and I also have a group on LinkedIn called Canadian Business Succession Professionals. And so either that way, either of those ways would work. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We'd welcome your advice and feedback. Please uh, share it on iTunes or send me an email, noah at freedomadv.com. If you have recommendations for any future guests, feel free to share them. And uh, we look forward to having you back to listen on another episode. So thanks again, John, for coming on. And thanks again to our listeners. They have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Podcast.